welcome to the Bedazzle Your Elliptical episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance and bedazzling news of the week. This is going to be a crypto episode. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. Hi. And we have the New York Times' best crypto mind on the case to explain everything to us. Kevin Roos, my my former Fusion colleague, welcome to Slate Money. Thanks for having me. Long time no see. It's been a minute. You, How long have you been on the crypto beat? Well, I've been writing about crypto for like a decade, um, but I, I, you know, I took a little break in there. So I would say pretty intensely since uh, since last year when I accidentally sold an NFT for like half a million dollars. That's right. You you NFT the New York Times article. Is has it changed hands since then? Do you know what it's worth now? Uh, well, the price of Ethereum, uh, the the cryptocurrency that it was purchased in, um, has has spiked. So I think today it's worth more than a million dollars, which I uh, I did not get to keep. I, I gave to charity. Oh man! I know. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, we are going to talk to you about um, the hipster grifters. The the latest failed attempt to launder a bunch of bitcoin or we're going to talk about your article which is which is an amazing article about how bitcoin can or crypto can actually make the world a better place cz we're going to talk about cz the richest man in the world quite possibly who was putting 200 million dollars into trying to buy a stake in forbes um it's all coming up on slate money but kevin because we love you here on this show before we get into all of that please to plug your book Thank you. It just came out in paperback a couple days ago. It's called Future Proof Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. It's about AI and automation and the weird future. Buy it at your local independent bookstore. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So let's jump in because I think it's been a minute since we've talked about hipster grifters on this show. And boy, do we have a hipster grifter story. Kevin, on a scale of like one to grifter, how, where does this land? Oh, it's off the charts. We've never seen grifter energy like this before. Um, I am frankly obsessed. With Dutch and Razzlecon? Razzlecon. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, Emily, bring us up to speed on who is Razzlecon and is she a multi-billionaire? Razzlecon is Heather Morgan, who is a badass CEO female rapper who's ready to take on Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and any other place that oppresses individual uniqueness and self-expression. Well, that is how she describes herself. But she's also the perpetrator of a big crypto scam, along with her partner, Ilya 
Lichtenstein, who's called Dutch. Dutch. We should remember that the hipster grifters are innocent in the eyes of the law. They have not been convicted of anything. They have only been charged. And the one thing I will say about Razzlecan, like she she had there's a lot of cringe on her socials, but her ability to emulate the winking tongue out emoji is kind of amazing. <laughs> so I guess we should say a little bit more, right? They basically got caught in a crypto laundering scheme, the largest financial seizure ever or something, the largest crypto seizure ever. Like, to read between the lines, they have been charged with trying to launder $4 billion of crypto. It seems that the government doesn't have an open and shut case when it comes to charging them with stealing the $4 billion of crypto. But if you stole $4 billion of crypto, you wouldn't just give it to these guys and let them sit on it for like five years. It wasn't worth $4 billion when they stole it. It was worth like, what, $50 million when they stole it? And then it went up? I think $70 million, yeah. And this is what the, one of the very interesting things is they lived a relatively modest lifestyle in New York. They were in a kind of like, you know, fair to middling two bedroom apartment in the financial district. Um, she was, you know, bedazzling her elliptical and upcycling her clothes. And they weren't rich because the way the Bitcoin works is that it's very traceable. And everyone was keeping an eye on this wallet and saying what's happening, including the FBI. And it turns out that even though everyone thinks of Bitcoin as a great way to launder money, it's quite hard to launder money. It's really striking because for a long time, the sort of skeptical talking point about crypto was that it was like very good for doing crimes. And, and I guess for some <laughs> genre of crimes, that's probably true. It's, it's probably better than fiat currency. But for this specific kind of crime, like taking the proceeds from a giant hack of a crypto exchange and you know, spending them in a way that doesn't attract the attention of the authorities, it actually seems like they had a pretty hard time with it because of its Cryptoness, because it's like an indelible, you know, ledger on the blockchain. Um, you know, they they did successfully launder like a tiny bit of it, but nowhere near the full. They amount. bought like a five hundred dollar Walmart gift card. I mean, that was what they managed to successfully <laughs> do. It was it was kind of amazing. They the the complaint goes into details about like five or six different what's known in the crypto world as off-ramps. If you have Bitcoin and you want to convert it into any kind of currency, it needs to go through an off-ramp. You, you convert your Bitcoin to dollars or whatever. And everyone who does on-ramping or off-ramping needs to go through AML KYC, you know, anti-money laundering, know your customer things. And so they would try and open up these accounts and these exchanges would do what they have to do under the law, which is like, go through the New York customer processing. Who are you? Why do you have all these Bitcoin? Is it legitimate? And they'd be like, oh, shit. And it would fail. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what Bitcoin um, boosters, proponents, I'm sure there's a much cooler word to say, and Kevin will tell me what it is. But that's what they've been saying all along, right? Like Laser eyes. Yeah, like there's, it's harder to scam with this, with Bitcoin than with dollars. Obviously, if you steal a bunch of dollars, I've seen all the movies, like it's pretty easy. You get, you put them in your suitcase and you start spending them and it's fine. But with Bitcoin, it's far trickier and maybe impossible. It's, yeah, it certainly seems like they had a very hard time with their, you know, presumably ill gotten gains here, actually converting it into anything useful. I mean, so this is the big question which I have for, for you, Kevin, since you actually like cover this stuff. 
I actually did some reporting this week, weirdly, which is I'm, I'm on I'm on book leave and I'm not meant to be doing that kind of thing. But I talked to okay? uh, <laughs> I talked to a guy who was like into the whole like criminal underworld thing, and he was like, "What guys? <laughs> the um, if they like had some friends in the Mexican cartels, they could have laundered this no problem. They just didn't know the right people." Felix, I have so many more questions about your criminal underworld sources. Yes. <laughs> Are they a, a criminal doer or a criminal watcher or a little both? Uh, maybe I may, maybe a little both. Kevin. Wow. Okay. Felix is going to federal prison. <laughs> 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 Felix is definitely in on some schemes. Uh, maybe he's part of the the Razzle Khan syndicate. Irish uh, yeah, no, it's mafia? true. Like Razzle Khan was like she she lived like you know what like half a mile from my apartment. She would just come over with some you know, bitcoins on cold storage on USB drives. And I I have no idea what I would do with that. Like I literally, I am not in with the Mexican criminal underworld, but apparently the Mexican criminal underworld is the, is the people you want to hang out with. If you want to launder Bitcoin, this is, this is the not investment advice in like flashing all caps that we fail to give out on slate money. What I'm hearing is if Felix came across some stolen Bitcoin, he would know who to call to launder it. And it would be okay, and he would not wind up in an FBI press release. I know, I know zero Mexican drug lords. I'm, I'm but I feel like say. you're like two degrees separate from them now. <laughs> that is the thing I've learned so far from this conversation. Kevin's not. Felix, I, I feel like the, this is a stunt journalism piece waiting to happen. I think you need to try to launder some <laughs> stolen crypto through I, the Mexican I tried cartel. To some, <laughs> I tried to launder some stolen crypto. What could possibly go wrong? Yes, I think that's a great idea. So the big question I have for you, Kevin, is just it's just that's one. Like, is it legitimately difficult to launder Bitcoin? Yes. Like, I, I, <laughs> I think from what we know, it's like it is difficult to launder crypto. Um, there are services. There are these things called tumblers um, that you can basically send crypto to, and it will kind of obscure the origin and like spit it out to a different wallet and sort of sort of make it untraceable. But like. People are watching those services closely in law enforcement because that's the obvious thing that you would do if you were trying to launder a bunch of crypto. There are also these so-called privacy coins, coins like Monero, um, that people talk about as being useful for sort of as an off-ramp. So it, it appears that it is both like legitimately kind of tricky to obscure the sort of source and the flow of crypto assets, but also like these do not appear to have been criminal masterminds. And um, I cannot wait for the like, you know, Ocean's Eleven style heist movies that will be coming out um, based on this whole saga a few years from now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I really want to talk, Kevin, to you about your piece this week, which was awesome, where you kind of like pulled back on the snark and found a a cryptocurrency that is not terrible. <laughs> well, I'll let people judge whether or not it's terrible, but I I for years I've been reporting on crypto and every time like the the criticism I get back the the thing that skeptics say is like it's not good for anything. You can't use it for anything. There's nothing that you could do in crypto that you can't do with dollars. Everything is just slower and less efficient and worse. Um, and, you know, they sort of are looking for this kind of use case that so far, like, really hasn't been there in any obvious way. Like, so I, I've been going in search of just like, what is a useful crypto thing that is like useful for I, what I call the the normie utility test, like which I think has basically three prongs to it. It's like first, like does this crypto thing like solve a problem outside of crypto? Like you know, there are lots of things that are crypto exchanges or like sort of intra crypto problems that are created by crypto, and then you you need to build something to solve that problem. So, but I was looking for stuff that was like outside of crypto. And the second piece is like, does this thing actually require crypto? Could you do it another way? And the third piece is like, is this primarily for financial speculation? Like, is there anything sort of non-speculative about this? And for a long time, I couldn't really find anything that that sort of passed that test. And then I came across this thing called Helium, um, which I don't know how familiar folks are with Helium, but I, I was not that familiar it's with it. It's inert gas. Yes, it, it it goes in uh, children's balloons and uh, and makes your voice uh, really high. No, helium is a um, is a decentralized wireless network for Internet of Things devices. So that sounds incredibly boring. Let's break that down a little bit. So you know there are millions and millions of these kind of so-called Internet of Things devices out there. Everything from like parking meters to connected ovens and refrigerators to like, you know, Lime scooters. Um, you know, they're even, I learned uh, in the course of reporting the story, they now sell internet connected mouse traps that will actually you know, send you a push alert when, you're, when, when your trap catches a mouse. So there are millions of these devices out there and they all need some way to talk to the internet. Um, but it's, pretty expensive and kind of clunky to buy an individual cellular data plan for each of those devices. So what Helium um, tried to do, and it started sort of back in 2013, it's not a new company, but they started trying to build out this kind of wireless network for these devices um, that could be sort of, that could reach anywhere that could power these devices that could allow them all to connect to the internet. And they failed at that. They were not successful. The company was running out of money. And then they kind of hit on this idea as kind of a last ditch save the company effort to apply sort of crypto economics to their model to turn these like hotspots, these long range wireless hotspots that people plug into their routers that powers the network to have them double as crypto miners and to have them produce this token called HNT Helium Network token that would re basically reward people for providing bits of their home Wi-Fi to this network for Internet of Things devices in their neighborhood. 
so basically, if my if I have one of these boxes and I plug it into my internet router and I'm serving up this this Wi-Fi network to my neighborhood, and my neighbor buys an internet connected mousetrap, um, and the mousetrap sends a ping alert to my neighbor saying you've just caught a mouse, then and it goes via my via the router that is plugged into via the box that is plugged into my router, then I like earn one HNT or whatever for that. And then I can, and it's the more pings that come through my box, the more HNT I earn. And eventually if all goes according to plan, the value of the HNT that I earn will pay for the amount of dollars that I needed to spend in fiat currency to buy the box in the first place. Exactly. So I have a little helium uh, device that I've been testing um, in the, for reporting the story. It's about the size of a deck of cards. It sits uh, on my floor right beside me, and it takes some fragment of my unused bandwidth from my home network, and it sort of broadcasts it out to any nearby devices that need to use it. Um, and I get a fraction of uh, an HNT, you know, every day or every other day. And I think so far I've made like $9. Like it's not a lucrative thing, but it, it, if I left it running for long enough, it would eventually pay back the cost of the device and then be pure profit after that. So some people, especially those who got in on it early, made like thousands of dollars a month just by installing these little boxes in their homes and offices. I guess I still don't really understand, Kevin. i I know like throughout time, marketers have used incentives to get people to use their products. Like if you send someone a newsletter, if you refer 10 people to the newsletter, you get free stuff or Uber pays you to take Ubers because it's trying to build, get customers, um, whatever. Kohl's gives me Kohl's bucks. Like how is this actually different than that? Because it seems like it's just a marketing incentive with like a crypto spin to me. What was the ex ante model? Like how did they persuade people to plug these things in before they pivoted to crypto? Were they giving away the, um, the devices and, and like, yeah, how did it work before? Well, they were trying to like strike deals with companies to like, you know, install these in your, you know, your, your offices or just they were sort of trying to like bootstrap this network by like going door to door and like asking people if they wanted to like install these little things. And like, it just didn't work. People weren't that into it. They didn't really see the utility in it. Um, and it's kind of a weird esoteric thing, like a wireless network. That's not for people. It's for devices. And, and it, the the reason I think this is actually somewhat instructive as sort of a, a lesson in what crypto economics can do is that, Essentially, it's solved in Helium's case what's called the cold start problem. So in technology, you have these things called network effects. Like basically it's the reason why like you you don't want to be like the first user of Twitter. Uh, well, I guess you do because that would mean you're extremely rich now. But like you, you, being user 100 of a service like Twitter or Facebook or YouTube is not all that valuable because no one has really showed up yet. It's not really a network yet. Um, but being the millionth user of a service like those is is kind of valuable. Like you get the effects of the network; it's built out. There's stuff to look at and and you know retweet and and there's content. It, it the the sort of gains go to the late adopters, if you want to put it that way. But with the crypto model and what you're trying to build, it in Helium's case is a network. So 
if you're the second node on the Helium network, you're not being very useful to people. And a network with only two nodes on it is not very useful for these devices, but a network with hundreds of thousands of nodes is. So then the question is, how do you get from zero to hundreds of thousands? And one way you could do that is you could be Comcast and you could just spend a billion dollars to build you know, hundreds of thousands of nodes. Or you could go door to door and try to convince people to set these up on their own, which didn't really work for them. They tried that. But what they did with crypto is that they basically incentivized the early users. They, they basically solved the cold start problem by giving away these tokens. So they would say, you know, if you install 10 of these machines and they're very, very useful, you put them in, you know, high on your roof where they can broadcast good signal and you get a great antenna for them, you are going to make the most money. And so they basically inverted the, the sort of network model um, and made the network very useful for people who showed up early. Um, and so that's how they ended up getting this thing to the size that it actually was a viable uh, network. And the thing that um, jumped out at me being, you know, a finance nerd is that what they, what they're effectively giving away with these tokens is something which looks and smells a little bit like, equity it's something that is um, a function of the revenues of the company and in theory you could tell people like you know if you buy this device and use it we will give you a certain number of shares um, if you know people use your node and of course there are a million sec related reasons why that wouldn't work and you would be issuing securities and you would have to be a securities issuer and you'd have to jump through a bunch of hoops and you it would just never get off the ground. And so in a weird way, this feels to me like a little bit of a regulatory arbitrage, that they're taking advantage of the fact that this token is not regulated as a security to be able to do something that just wouldn't be possible if it was regulated as a security. Yeah, that's. I, I would say that's partially true. I, I agree with that. And there's certainly... Um, are people at the SEC who think that you know tokens like these should be regulated as as securities, and um, that could really blow up the model that Helium has built? Um, and there's there's other problems with Helium, like for example, it definitely violates the terms of service of your internet service provider, who um, you know does not want you reselling slivers of your bandwidth uh, over a, a long range Wi Fi network for smart devices. So one of several problems with the Helium model um, is that you know, the regulatory status of these tokens is still uncertain. But I think it's a it's a really useful example of kind of what, you know, people who are into Web3 crypto, you know, whatever you want to call it, see as being sort of the, the differentiating quality of this, which is that it basically provides another path to achieving a network effect rather than sort of slow organic growth or spending a lot of money up front. Instead, you with a traditional network, that you, you sort of get the users first, and then you figure out how to make money from the users. In this kind of project, the money comes first, and then the, that money sort of incentivizes people to chase after it, and then maybe build something useful in the process. Does that make sense? I still sort don't of. really understand, just to be honest. <laughs> like, So, instead of paying people to use Helium, Helium has them mining crypto and getting money that way 
Well, mining, I think mining is a little How, bit of a weird is, word. They, they I guess just, I don't understand they, where that money comes from. They, so the money comes from companies like Lime or the manufacturer of the mousetrap or basically anyone who's making Internet of Things devices, they pay Helium to be able to use their network. And then Correct. Helium turns around. Oh, think of Helium a bit like Spotify, okay. you know. And and you're like the artist on Spotify, basically. And so you get, a str- you, you know, you have one stream on Spotify, you get like one HNT in return. And they're just, they're just paying out in crypto rather than paying out in dollars. Why? Why not pay out in dollars? Like if someone told me, if you use this device, I'll give you $10 a month, I'd be like, oh, okay. But if they told me like, if you use this device, you have to mine, I, maybe I'm just old, but like, I'd rather just have the dollars. No, it's a great question. And I asked the the COO of, of Helium that question. And what he basically said was that there are two things. One is, you know, people, you know, $10 a month is is a static number. It's never going to go up. It's never going to go down. Helium can sort of change the, you know, could change the payout at any time. And with the token, like you could make $10 one month and $700 the next month if the token price goes up. So it's, it introduces some volatility that people, you know, some of them might like. Also, it's, it's still not that easy to do what are called micropayments um, in dollars. So charging someone, you know, uh, or, or paying someone a fraction of a cent uh, isn't really viable in, um, you know, in our sort of traditional financial system with, you know, credit card payment processing fees and things like that. So Helium is able to do kind of micropayments in a way that it might not be able to do if it was just, you know, doing this through dollars. So the question which I have for you is, great, I have my HNT, and there is a market in HNT, as you say, it's a cryptocurrency, it's volatile, it goes up and down, people are willing to pay dollars for HNT. So my, and I guess part of that is just people speculating like they would on any cryptocurrency they think it's going up so they buy it in the hope that they can sell it at profit but is there any fundamental utility to the hnt token is there anything i can do with hnt tokens uh, beyond like just try and find a greater fool to sell them for even more dollars than they paid for them yes uh, because HNT tokens are how you purchase data credits on the network. Uh, so if you're Lime, okay. if you're the Mousetrap company, if you're so Volvo, there's a constant demand for HNT tokens from people from Mousetrap companies wanting to use You basically have to things. spend this HNT to purchase the ability to use this wireless network. I, th- I think this is clever. So it's crypto to buy a better Mousetrap. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally a better, literally mousetrap, a better yes. mousetrap. But the, the thing which I like about this the most actually has nothing to do with crypto. It's just that every time up until now that you've bought any kind of smart device, there has always been an incredibly painful thing where you have to download an app on your phone and connect it to your local Wi-Fi, and it doesn't only works and it never connects, and it's a five G network and that doesn't work, you know, whatever. And suddenly, that whole desperate palaver of having to connect your light bulb to your home wi-fi you don't need to do that anymore it just connects automatically to helium and everything just becomes easy am i right in theory yes in theory i should say like that's one use of this they're also imagining that this will be um used as kind of a um a, a roaming network. So if you are like a, you know, cell phone customer and you're going somewhere where your, you know, coverage doesn't 
uh, where, you're, where you don't have coverage, you could, instead of roaming onto another cell carrier's network and paying the roaming fee, you could roam onto the Helium network and pay Helium um, in Helium tokens to use that network. So they, they have all kinds of plans um, that go beyond just like mousetraps and scooters and parking meters, um, but that's where they've started. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, I think we should talk about Binance. We kind of talked about Bitfinex, not really. Bitfinex was the slightly weird shadowy company from which the hipster grifters stole their 100,000 Bitcoins back in the day. And it's very big and it's got, it owns this slightly weird shadowy stablecoin called Tether. And everyone's a little bit unsure what to make of Bitfinex. And then the other really enormous, probably the single biggest crypto co- company in the world is this company called Binance, which is based in question mark. No one knows where it's based. We know who owns it. This guy, CZ, who lives in Singapore, he, um, very friendly chap and very open, happy to talk to anyone, but like, won't is, it seems to have a, let's say an arm's length relationship with a lot of regulators. He's like, I want to be regulated, but all the regulators are like, but you're not cooperating. And, there are people saying that he's probably the richest person in the world. And now he seems to have done the hashtag billionaire whimsy thing, which is buy a magazine. Yes. Yes. (laughs) He bought, well, he didn't fully buy it, but he, he's going to invest $200 million. Yeah. He's buying a minority interest in Forbes magazine for $200 million, which none of this makes any sense to me. Number one, why would he want, any stake in Forbes magazine. But if you do want a stake in Forbes magazine, don't you want to just buy the thing? Why would you want to buy like a third of it? There's this intrigue that Sarah Fisher has in Axios today saying, and I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, isn't that how people do this? Okay, so <laughs> apparently in late 2020, Binance sued Forbes for defamation over some documents or something. And 
then the lawsuit went away. And I'm not saying, but that's interesting that they were at odds with each other. And now Binance is sort of coming to Forbes's rescue because it has a SPAC on deck and like SPACs aren't, are bad now. And um, I guess Binance's money is kind of edging out the money of the other Chinese, of the Chinese investment firm that does have money. I'm getting all tied up here because it's so confusing, but the Binance money kind of edges out the Chinese investment firm's money in Forbes ahead of the SPAC, which is weird. I'm running out of steam. I don't (laughs) understand. Kevin understands it. So Kevin's going to explain it. Oh, good. Okay. (laughs) Well, I don't know what the financial rationale of uh, Binance investing $200 million in in Forbes is. Um, You'd have to ask um, CZ. All I know is what he um, has said publicly, which is, you know, this is a storied media brand and we want, you know, to invest in storied media brands. And he tweeted um, this sort of cryptic sentence about the deal um, saying, invest in both new and old and bridge them with crypto. So it's like, it's possible that what he's trying to do here, what Binance is trying to do here is just to like basically acquire a stake in a outlet that it hopes will be friendly to crypto and to the kind of Binance business interests. Um, and, and really this is like kind of an interesting moment in sort of crypto media. Um, there are these sort of crypto specific outlets, you know, you've got your coin desks and, 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 you know, such, and generally they're kind of operating as trade publications, um, you know, for people in the crypto industry or who, who already know quite a lot about crypto. But I think there's been a lot of frustration in the crypto community at how they've been covered by the quote unquote mainstream media. Um, Forbes, I would say, is sort of a mainstream publication. It's got this contributor network. Um, it also, you know, has uh, still puts out a magazine. And so uh, there's a universe in which this is sort of the first of many crypto kind of media acquisitions in which companies and, and very wealthy individuals in crypto try to kind of bend the media more to their liking by taking a financial stake in it. I don't think this is the last media acquisition we will see by a crypto mogul. I think it's also, I mean, historically, upstart companies, tech startups, they buy a stake in sort of a traditional media company as like a a legitimizing move, right? I mean, Binance is a shady company based in who knows where, but now it has this very storied brand it can point to. Forbes, and like, though I think we all have gone to the Forbes website and been horrified, I think some people still feel like this is a legitimate media company. Like someone not in media messaged me and was like, do you know Heather Morgan from Forbes? You know, she's the crypto scammer and is not actually a journalist who works at Forbes. But like to the, you know, to someone not paying that much attention, they're like, Forbes is legit. Oh my gosh. It it has, no, it, it does still have a brand name. That's for sure. But the interesting thing to your thesis is that when this weird, Chinese company called Integrated Whale, I am not making this up, bought for, bought Forbes a few years ago, there was zero legitimizing <laughs> impact on Integrated Whale. That's like, true. <laughs> like, no matter what you think of Forbes, no one's like, oh yeah, Integrated Whale, those guys are great, you know? Yeah, I mean, that, uh, fine, but there are plenty of other examples where buying a media company buys you a little bit more legitimacy and it definitely gets you marketing, right? I mean, uh, I guess Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post gave him a great marketing 
lever to pull, which we talked about, I don't know when that was, a while ago. Um, Mark Benioff buying time got him a lot of credit. I, I don't know. It's it, it works most of the time, doesn't it? It's also just like so little money to someone like CZ. I mean, I think we have to like keep in perspective that while $200 million is objectively a big chunk of change, I mean, this is someone who is reportedly worth uh, you know, some, somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred billion dollars, um, and has gotten that wealthy you know, very, very quickly, like basically in the last five years. Um, and so this is not like, this is not a huge amount of money to, to him or to Binance. This is, you know, the equivalent of like one of us, you know, like picking up a, you know, a, a, a nice uh, copy of the New Yorker or something. And that's true. Like what you often find in the art world is that when, an artist strikes it rich, what they do is they start like buying up old masters because they're selling paintings for like, for, you know, a million dollars. And you can find like really amazing, you know, Dutch portraits from the 17th century for a quarter of a million dollars. And for most people, a quarter of a million dollars is a crazy amount of money to spend on a painting. But if you are being able to churn out your own paintings for $2 million, then suddenly the arbitrage makes sense. And it, you know, it's almost a little bit like AOL buying Time Warner. You know, it's like we, he has this currency of, which is just worth an insane amount of money. Why not spend it on the kind of toys that you could never normally afford? It makes, and, and plus on top, but I think beyond that kind of billionaire whimsy thing, there is a thesis here in the minds of CZ and the people who believe in crypto, which is that eventually, somehow, it's not going to just be helium that bridges the world between like the real world and crypto. That the crypto is going to infiltrate everything in the real world, including media. And that something, something Forbes, something Metaverse, something Web3, we don't entirely understand it. But that there is a way that media is going to become part of the Metaverse. And that if you want to have, if you want to be a force in Web3 and the metaverse and crypto, then you want to have, you want to be a force in media as well. Um, and I don't understand that, but like maybe Emily does. Well, I just thought of something. Remember back in like the 90s and the 2000s, there were mainstream media did not understand the internet. Remember that? There's that clip they always play where they're on the Today Show and they're like, what is internet? But meanwhile, there were all these journalists, um, mostly where Kevin is, like working what would become Wired and all this, these places that did understand the internet, and they won. Like they eventually infiltrated traditional media. They started. They're they're everywhere now. Stephen Levy. There's Wired. Whatever. Um, right now, if you look at traditional media's coverage of crypto, it's like I think it's pretty bad. I don't know. I still don't understand crypto. So that would legitimize what I just said. It is pretty bad. Um, all the mainstream media outlets right now are like scrambling to catch up. And uh, like, if you look at like every traditional outlet, they have like a job listing for a crypto reporter or crypto bureau chief or whatever, like they're behind. And so it's time to like do that thing of like integrating. And maybe it's kind of like what Kevin was saying before. And maybe this is like a sign that that's starting to happen or another sign. I think it's absolutely... Uh, important to understand like the scale of crypto wealth and the speed at which it is like moving into every corner of American life. Like it's not just, you know, Binance, 
buying a stake in Forbes. Like the LA Lakers play in crypto.com arena now. Like there are crypto super PACs, there are crypto candidates, there, like crypto dark money is about to become like a real force in American politics. The amount of wealth that has been generated in the last five years from crypto is unfathomable. I mean, the, the closest thing to compare it to would be like the discovery of oil in the Middle East. Like it's like, it's like that big. And something like half of millennial millionaires have significant cryptocurrency holdings. So like, it's not just the whales like CZ. It's like all these people who have money either from crypto or from something sort of adjacent to crypto, but then have invested it in crypto. Like they are going to be the next generation of sort of influential sort of not just tastemakers, but big, big time donors and media moguls. And like this mindset is seeping rapidly into every facet of American life, which is why, like, even if you think the whole thing's a scam, I think it's really important to understand crypto. And I would agree with you, Emily, that I don't think the mainstream media's coverage of crypto has been anywhere near sufficient. Um, and I think there's going to be a lot of efforts to correct that. And I hope they work because I think it's really cru crucial for people to understand this, even if they're not investing in it themselves, even if they're very skeptical. Kevin, what do you think is the, the big thing that crypto people understand that non-crypto non people don't understand that the mainstream media has been doing a bad job of explaining? Where what What is it that, like, yeah, Emily doesn't know, but should know hey. if she wants to get her brain around this. <laughs> yeah, what well, don't I know? <laughs> I, I think a lot about kind of the psychology of crypto investing, which I think is sort of has some commonalities with like the psychology of meme stocks and sports gambling and all this kind of thing. And I think the media is generally sort of risk averse in its approach to covering the markets. It assumes that like risk is a bad thing. You know, people taking on risks is a bad thing. There's a, a kind of consumer protection mindset that I think comes from a very genuine place. Like a lot of people lost a lot of money in the dot-com, you know, collapse in the financial crisis in 2008. I think there's a strain of mainstream media coverage of crypto that assumes that like people don't know what risks they're taking on and they need to be aware. And when you talk to people in crypto or cover crypto, like they are totally aware. Their, their eyes are wide open to the risk that they're taking, and they want that risk. Like, I think that is the biggest disconnect. I, I um, wrote something last year um, where I talked about this sort of theory I have about trampolines versus ladders, where, like, for a long time, the way to get ahead economically in America was to climb the ladder. It was to, like, you know, go to the right school, get the right job, work your way up, get a raise every year sock money away in your 401k, you know, retire at a comfortable age. And like that, for various reasons, that model has like not worked for a while for, for young people today, especially people who are younger than me, people in their, you know, in their twenties. And so they are looking for trampolines. They are looking for these kind of windfalls, these, these moments where they can make a, a big lump sum all at once in order to say buy a house in a, in a market where housing costs are rising very, very rapidly. They, they don't trust that the ladder is there for them. Um, and so they are looking for the things that are risky. They are looking for gambles. They are looking for things that if they pay off, they won't just raise 10%. They'll get, you know, a hundred, you know, a hundred percent or a thousand percent or 10,000% or 10, returns on that initial investment. And I think that's a big sort of philosophical disconnect. That is honestly the nice version of Squid Game, essentially. 
that is Squid Game. I mean, there's a reason Squid Game was very popular. <laughs> seen as like a trenchant portrait of life under, you know, modern capitalism. I 100% agree with everything that Kevin just said, but the the crucial thing that distinguishes crypto from Squid Game because like a lot of a lot of talking heads on CNBC will be like, "Oh, you know, this is terribly risky. It's all going to end in tears." And the really important difference is that the stakes are so much lower in crypto. If you throw $1,000 into crypto and it becomes a million dollars, then you've got a million dollars. If you throw $1,000 into crypto and it goes to zero, you've lost $1,000. And if you're in your 20s, you know, you can find another $1,000. And it's, you, you know, you might technically have spent your entire life savings, but most people in their 20s don't have life savings. It doesn't matter that much. So it's like, why not take the risk? Totally. I, I spent a lot of time last year hanging out in like subreddits, you know, the Wall Street bets and crypto subreddits and things like that. And this one sort of comment sticks with me. There was someone who had just made like a hilariously um, risky trade um, and was explaining their decision to YOLO is what they were calling it um, into this trade. And they said like, look, best case scenario, I'm rich. Worst case scenario, I I have to live with my parents, but I already live with my parents. <laughs> so it's like it's like the the risk in that person's mind is like totally asymmetric. It's like I gamble and I have money, or I or I gamble and I lose and I don't have money, but I already kind of don't have money. I think we should have a numbers round. Emily, what's your number? My number is three hundred and fifty. That is the number of hours a guy named Alex Patterson at Media Matters spent listening to the Joe Rogan podcast last year. <laughs> wow. Wow. Which is like um, four or five episodes of that podcast. Is that right? Exactly. <laughs> he um, he put together a report, you know, for Media Matters on like the stuff he heard that was misinformation or whatever. And it was it was um, a little part. It was a part of this interesting piece in the Atlantic about how um, podcast. You can't just say whatever you want on podcasts anymore. I'm not advocating that you should say stuff like Joe Rogan says or anything like that. But it was a story about how podcasts are being more closely monitored now as they get bigger, as as we see with the Joe Rogan situation. And um, I was like, oh no, I don't want anyone listening to this. I mean, I want all you guys to listen to it that are listening right now. But like, I don't want to be monitored. That's the fun you don't part want to of get being on the podcast. For something you said on Slate Money, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I don't want someone to tweet Emily admits not knowing anything about cryptocurrency on Slate Money. <laughs> Emily, if someone gets from this podcast gets canceled, it's not going to be you. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'll put a link to the Um, story in the show notes. (laughs) My my number is 40. It's 40%. um, And Emily, maybe you know this. Are you familiar with, if I was to say the word genie plus or lightning lane, what I was talking about? No, I don't know what you're talking about. I thought maybe it had to do with inequality, but... So 40% is the increase in per capita spending at the American Disney theme parks at Disneyland and Disney World. People who are visiting Disneyland and Disney World are spending 40% more per person than they were in 2019 pre-pandemic. Why? That, because of Genie Plus and Lightning Lane. They have these new products... Um, they they have they're selling food for more, they're selling drinks for more, they're selling merchandise for more, and they're 
they've managed to create ways to get people to pay to jump the line basically and it is just they are minting money and that is my inflation figure of the week basically is that the actual price that people spend when they go to disneyland or disney world is up 40 percent since the pre-pandemic wow well that's wow. fine that's not like oil and gas inflation like if you want to pay more to go to disneyland <laughs> like who cares right am i wrong here Maybe this is actually the case for the metaverse is that it's just going to be so much cheaper than going to Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it was not exactly cheap in 2019, I can assure you. No. Why? Yeah. Have you been to Disneyland, Felix? I can't see Felix in Disneyland. Can you, Kevin? I, I can't. Just ride, riding the teacups? Can the teacups, yes, totally. I just, I just stay on the tea, teacups. I don't go anywhere else. I just enjoy the teacups. <laughs> <laughs> That's my speed right there. Kevin, what's your number? My number is point zero two eight eight four dollars. Is that a cryptocurrency price? It it is. Um, I decided <laughs> to stick with the crypto theme. That is the current price of something called Smooth Love Potion. Um, <laughs> Smooth Love Potion is the in-game currency, the in-game cryptocurrency of a video game called Axie Infinity, which is a very popular crypto video game. It's it's what you get when you play Axie Infinity. And it has soared uh, about 70% in the last day because Axie Infinity updated its game um, in a way that is, the, is going to um, make uh, these tokens, these smooth love potion tokens, um, more valuable by, um, by reducing the supply of them. And what I find interesting about this, I mean, this is obviously crazy. And, and the fact that we're talking about something called smooth love potion, but it is uh, this world of kind of play to earn video games that are powered by crypto is really um, heating up. There are billions of dollars being invested in them. And for a while, smooth love potion was actually seeing more trading action than Ethereum um, last year. But um, it, but it basically forces these video game developers to kind of behave like central bankers, like because they are not only trying <laughs> to make a game that people want to play and keep it fun for people, but they are also trying to manage the money supply within that game because this is people's real livelihood. There are people in the Philippines who play Axie Infinity full time as their job. And are you know undergoing an economic crisis because the price of smooth love potion has been tanking. So this is a big deal in the game of Axie Infinity, and it's going to be fascinating to see um, you know how they set up their own Federal Reserve for every video game. But from this now is on. this is a phenomenon that predates crypto. I remember when people were doing this with QQ tokens. There was this game that like a bunch of Chinese play to earn gamers were were buying QQ tokens and turning them into renminbi. And, but I guess it's just like with crypto, everything just becomes, as we said, like a securities arbitrage. And so it just becomes easier to set these things up. Yeah, I am, I am sort of amazed that um, Razzle Khan was not uh, in on the smooth love potion uh, uh, grift because it would seems like a match made in heaven. Kevin, I, I, I want to talk to you about crypto punks. We're going to do that in a minute when we have our little Slate Plus segment. But for those of, our listeners who don't subscribe to Slate Plus, that is it for us this week. That has been like the most crypto-heavy episode of Slate Money in a while. I'm so glad we had Kevin on to do it because it's been awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much to Shana Rothter for producing. Thanks so much to all of you guys for 
writing in slate money at slate.com and we will be back next week with another slate money okay round two name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work, limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.